Good morning, Christ Church. Every time I get the opportunity to preach, I can truly say it's always an honor and a privilege. Well, this morning I'll be preaching from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. I'll be preaching through verses 15 all the way through verse 40. I'll read the text in its entirety, and then I will pray for the Lord to bless us. Beginning in verse 15, 1 Kings chapter 18. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep must be woken up. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, 
O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. O Lord, we have indeed come here today for one purpose, to glorify you and to lift up your holy name and to show thanks for the grace that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word now that we would see clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would see our Savior in all of his glory here in your word. Lord, we do pray this in Christ's very precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we have the privilege of coming to a really great text, a very dramatic text, a very famous and probably well-known text for many of you. It's a story in the Bible that really captures our attention with this test of strength up on the top of the mountain to finally find out who is the true and living God. Who is the powerful God? But there's also a reason that this test is taking place. You see, at this time in Israel, it's a very dark moment for several reasons. One, the the people have been largely disobedient to the Lord. They have wandered away from following the Lord faithfully and have begun to follow other gods. At the top of this nation, you have really pagan rulers King Ahab and Queen Jezebel promoting the worship of Baal, which at this time has become so popular. It's become so popular that God's people at this time, those who want to be faithful, have been persecuted. They're living in caves. They're worried for their lives. And on top of all of that, the land for three years now has been in severe drought. The people are suffering. And drought specifically because of their disobedience. It's a dark time here when we open up this text. There's three things I would like us to see this morning. First is the showdown itself, the showdown that takes place on the mountain. Secondly is the silence of idols that they do not speak. And thirdly is the superiority of the Lord. The showdown, the silence of idols, and the superiority of the Lord. Let's start with the beginning with the showdown. You might have noticed as I began to read this text that I really did pick up right in the middle of the story. Pick up right when the action is already getting going. There's been a great dispute between Ahab, the king, and between God's prophet Elijah. And for three years now, Ahab has been diligently searching for Elijah in an attempt to put him away, to uh, persecute him, and to possibly even kill him. And he's been on the run for this whole time. And just now, in verses 15 through 16, Elijah resolves to go and to confront this wicked and powerful king who promotes false worship. And right when they get together, the war of words begins. Look what Ahab says in verse 17. He says, Is it you, you troubler, 
of Israel. You see, in his eyes, all of the problems in this nation are not his fault. They are Elijah's fault. It's because Elijah will not stop prophesying the word of the Lord. And so in his eyes, Elijah, excuse me, is the one sowing all of this confusion, all of this chaos. Everything that's wrong is really his fault. Elijah doesn't think that's the case, does he? Look what he says in verse 18. He, he says the complete opposite. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So who's right? How are we going to settle this problem? How are we going to know who is truly at fault? Well, a showdown is what we get. A challenge, a test at the top of the mountain is the way that this will be settled. We see this beginning in verse 19 with this challenge issued from the mouth of the prophet himself. He says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So here is the showdown. But who is going to be involved in this test upon the mountain? Well, obviously, you're going to have Elijah himself, alone and by himself. On the other side, you have 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. But there is a third party involved as well. It's all Israel. That all of the people were to be gathered. Not literally every person would come up to the top of this mountain, but the heads of houses, the leaders of the tribes, the people who could represent all of the tribes of Israel, they would be there to represent all the people of God. And I think this is important for us to recognize here for just a moment, that we need to see that the people are just as involved as are the prophets in this situation. They're really not innocent bystanders. We really shouldn't read this text as if the people are coming to watch a ball game. And they're perhaps rooting for their favorite team, and they might go home a little bit sad or a little bit happy, depending on the outcome. No, they're not fans at a ball game. Rather, they, the outcome of, this, of what goes on in the mountain will demand something of them. Look at what Elijah says on verse 21. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal... And follow him. He uses this Hebrew idiom to limp between two different opinions. It has to do with somebody who is so indecisive that they cannot decide what they should do. You might imagine somebody coming up to a fork in the road and being so indecisive about the right path or the left path that they, they think about the pros and the cons of each path for so long and again and again that they never actually take one of the two paths. But notice what Elijah says here. Their opinion doesn't matter. Their opinion doesn't matter. He says, if Baal is real, then follow Baal. Likewise, if the Lord is real, they must follow the Lord. Their opinion really doesn't make a difference in this at all, does it? And this shows us something else. There really is no neutrality before God. There is no neutral third position when it comes to who God is. That when it comes to being undecided before God, we cannot imagine that that is a safe 
and fine place to be. This is so important, especially when it comes to who God is. What we believe about the gospel, who we think Jesus Christ is. Brothers and sisters, we are all on a side. Even Jesus himself teaches this in Matthew 12, verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Well, today's the day that the people have to acknowledge that reality. They're going to have to choose this day. They cannot limp any longer. Perhaps there's some here today who are limping between two different opinions. What I mean by that is this. Perhaps you have found an interest in Christ, but you're really not entirely sure about him. Maybe you've been attracted somewhat to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in the end, you know that you really don't want to devote yourself to Jesus. Maybe you find the grace of God appealing to you, but you really don't want to give up your sin. That's what it means to limp between God and this world. See, brothers and sisters, we cannot be like that famous character in the Bible, the rich young ruler that we read about in Luke 18. That man had everything, power, wealth, and youthfulness. And at the end of the story, because he didn't have Jesus, that man had absolutely nothing. The truth has to compel us. If the Lord is God, follow him. Now, you may be thinking at this point, this doesn't really seem like much of a contest between the Lord on one side and Baal on the other. You may be saying to yourself, I don't really have any interest in Baal worship. I've never been particularly drawn to Baal worship. You may be thinking to yourself, I don't know anyone that worships Baal. When you, when you drive out on the highways, you don't see any Baal bumper stickers out on the road. And so you're wondering, why would anyone want to worship Baal? What's so alluring about him? Well, there's a couple things that we should know about what Baal worship meant, why it was so prevalent at this time. I'll use here one theologian, Dale Ralph Davis, who gives four key characteristics that he found so compelling for ancient Israelites to worship Baal at this time. Four reasons. The first one is that Baal worship had royal sanction. We've already seen that in our text. That the most powerful people at this time, the king and the queen, all of the leaders of Israel, they worshipped Baal. In their eyes, Baal worship represented power and wealth and prestige. It was common. It was what everyone was doing. It was what was expected of you. A second reason was a reason of tradition. Baalism was not a new thing. It's not a new fad that has just sort of popped up in the land. No, it's an ancient religion in the ancient world. It had actually predated the worship of the Lord in the land of Canaan. And so while it had been cast out for a time, it's been brought back. And so it has set customs. It has set practices. It's an established religion. A third reason why this religion was so alluring to some were the blessings associated with it. You see, Baal was a weather god. And of course, having a weather god on your side meant hopefully good crops, a bountiful harvest. Not only that, but he was a god of life and fertility. And so worshiping him, one could hope for health, big families, to have comfort and security and prosperity, a comfortable life. 
an easy life. And fourthly, Delroth Davis lists that it was a sensual worship. And what I mean by that, it was a worship that appealed to all of the senses. It, the worship of Baal involved loss of inhibition, the loss of restraints, wild raving, dancing, even at times sexual misconduct, all bound up in the worship. You, you might simply say it was where the party was at. It was fun and big and exciting very often. So what's really behind Baal worship? Do the people today worship Baal? No, they don't. Do they worship power, comfort, security, health, excitement? Yes, they do. Those are the idols that even we are tempted with. Well, the showdown continues on, and Elijah makes sure that there is something of stacked odds in this duel, that every advantage will be given to Baal. The location is Mount Carmel. We might not know this, but Mount Carmel was associated with Baal worship. It was a, a reverent place of Baal worship. You might just say simply like this, the home field advantage goes to the other side. Elijah is by himself, and he's against 850 prophets. That's another advantage, Team Baal. He says in verse 22, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. In verse 23, he lets them choose the bull that they will sacrifice, whatever one is to their liking. And even the test itself, a test of fire, call out to your God and which God will bring down fire, that favors Baal, or at least in the eyes of Baal worshipers. You see, as we've already noted, Baal's a storm god, casting down a couple of lightning bolts, creating a big, massive fire. That, that's got to be easy for Baal, right? That's basically all that he does. Do you get the point that Elijah is making here? There's not going to be any question when the victor is announced. There will be no question that the Lord is greater. No one will be able to claim foul. No one will be able to say that the test was unfair. And then the test itself is very simple. Verse 24, call out upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Speak and see if your God is the one who speaks back. That brings us to our second point, the silence of idols. Well, the showdown goes on and it begins, and first up is Baal. The prophets all take their places. They sacrifice. They begin to cry out to Baal. They say in verse 26, oh, Baal, answer us. And nothing happens. It goes on in verse 26, but there was no voice, and no one answered. An hour goes by, they begin to dance, nothing changes. More hours go by, now it's lunchtime, you've been watching this for a while now, and yet nothing at all has changed. Baal has not said one word. Imagine what it was like to watch this unfold, that every hour that goes by, it just gets more awkward. It gets more pathetic. You become more embarrassed for the Baal worshipers. You know, years ago when I was in high school, some friends of mine and I went to another school to watch a play, a uh, play we were excited about, a very dramatic play, very hard play. And uh, I, if I could just put it bluntly, it was terrible uh, in really every way. The 
actors were forgetting all of their lines. They were taking these awful, long, awkward pauses trying to remember. The set looked bad. Uh, Really, everything that could go wrong in a play went wrong. And as you're watching the play go on and on and on, you begin to be embarrassed for those, embarrassed that they have their name associated with that particular production of that play. I think it was a lot like that on this day. It was embarrassing to be a Baal worshiper this day on the mountain. I think it's why Elijah, it makes so much sense that he begins to mock them in verse 27, using a bit of holy humor here. He says to them, why don't you cry louder? Cry aloud. Maybe Baal is busy. Maybe he's meditating, really, in some deep thought focusing. Maybe he's using the bathroom or out on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping, and if you get really loud, you'll wake him up. And what do they do? See, that's a good idea. Let's get even louder. Even on top of that, they become more extreme in what they do. They begin to cut themselves, we're told in the text, pouring out their blood onto the altar, dancing madly around, raving about, thinking all the while, certainly this has got to work. We'll get Baal's attention. He'll answer. He'll win the day. Dead silence. Look at how severe verse 29 is. It says it three times. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's almost a silence that you can feel. And after all of this, Baal says nothing. So what are we as the people of God to make of this scene? We see this utter waste of energy. We see what looks to us like foolishness, stupidity. It it looks moronic to, to worship that which does not speak back to you and gives you nothing. That's what idolatry is, though, isn't it? That at heart, all idolatry really is the same. And so even though we may pride ourselves today of having more sophisticated idols, in reality, are they all that different than that day on the mountain? Really, idolatry is trying to find ultimate pleasure in anything but God. It's trying to find happiness and joy and give worship to anything besides God. And we're seeing here in a powerful way that all idolatry really is foolishness. You know, John in his epistle, first epistle, tells us that the world itself is passing away. Why would we idolize the things of this world? They're passing away. Soon to be no more. Only the Lord and his people will remain. It is foolish to idolize anything but the Lord himself. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we worshiping today? What is your own heart worshiping? Are you wholeheartedly following the Lord? Or perhaps you've been drawn to an idol, whatever it may be. Perhaps you're tempted to value something in your life as greater than the Lord himself. I have to tell you this morning that just as Baal could say nothing, your idol will not satisfy you. No, brothers and sisters, we must recommit ourselves to what is truly most important. That is the Lord, his word, his gospel, and his people. Idols are silent. 
God is never silent. And thirdly, we see the superiority of the Lord. All of the people are called together, and Elijah begins to rebuild this altar that had evidently been thrown down at some point. He uses 12 stones, we're told, to signify 12 tribes. Now, why does he do this? Why particularly these 12? Well, I think what he's doing is he's giving them a visible reminder of their history. And it was the Lord who named them. It was the Lord who called them Israel. It was the Lord who split them up into 12 tribes. It was the Lord who saved them. And at this crucial time, what they need to remember more than anything is God himself. Well, just as earlier, Elijah goes on to make the challenge even harder for himself. Verse 32, he builds a trench all around the altar. And then he tells some of those that are standing there, go pour water on the altar and let it fill up the trenches and do it a second time and then do it a third time, making it absolutely clear that the Lord is going to win this. And then in beautiful fashion, he calls to the Lord one time, not for hours, but a single time. He says in verses 36 through 37, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know you, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What's the essence of that prayer? There's really two things. That the people would know that the Lord is God. And secondly, that they would have their hearts turned back. That from that knowledge, flowing from their confession of faith, they would repent and turn to the Lord. And both of those things happen in this text immediately. Verse 39. Excuse me. First, we see the fire fall. That's an important part, huh? What happens immediately after he prays? The Lord comes in a powerful fashion. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Have you ever seen those bonfires? And I don't mean your average backyard bonfire. I'm talking about those bonfires that are so massive that you can hardly stand within 30 feet of it and you feel the, per the burn on your face. It's a tremendous fire. I think that's the kind of fire falling here today. It is a consuming fire, a deadly fire. It's the fire of a holy God. And then, exactly as Elijah prays for, knowledge and repentance both come. In verse 39, it says, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then in verse 40, they repent. They put to death the prophets of Baal, taking them to the, to the river and having them slaughtered. That's not an excessive response that we are seeing. We're not seeing the Israelites excitable and, and perhaps going a bit overboard here in this action. No, they're doing exactly what the Lord required of them. Deuteronomy 13, they are instructed that if there are false prophets in your midst, they must be put to death. And specifically in Deuteronomy 13, 5, so you shall purge 
the evil from your midst. The people have seen the superiority of their God, and they act because of it. So what can we say is the purpose of this text? If we could summarize it, I think we can summarize it like this. We are given a story where God speaks loudly. That that day on the mountain when fire came down and consumed this sacrifice before everyone, mouths were shut. Everybody on that day knew the truth. And the people of God turned and repented. But as loudly as God spoke on that day, he's spoken even more loudly in our day. Here's what I mean. This is how the book of Hebrews opens up. And I'll just read the first couple of verses. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has spoken even in our day, and he has spoken even more loudly. He has spoken in Christ. And the wonderful thing here is that there is nothing left to say. There's no more conversation that needs to take place. Everything that you need to know, everything that you need to believe, everything that you need to have hope of everlasting, eternal, blessed, and perfect life with God Almighty, all of it is bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has spoken. He has spoken loudly in Jesus. Will you listen to him? Will you follow him with all of your heart? Let us pray.